Tonight we're going to come to one of these passages that I think that provokes questions of why. And, you know, unlike some in the popular culture, I guess, um, God made us to ask why. As a matter of fact, it says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in the hearts of all mankind, yet he has frustrated our ability to understand the beginning from the end. That God has made us in such a way that we long to know why, right? I mean, the evolutionary biologist can't explain why we want to ask these sorts of questions, really, like why we care enough. But there are a lot of people that in some ways, either because of the pop culture, they just think, ah, why, why ask why, just live for today, just all this kind of stuff. Now, you were made to ask why. We're going to get to a passage tonight that talks about God's judgment and God's wrath. And that's the kind of passage that provokes all kinds of why questions, starting with probably, why are you going to preach on that kind of story, right? Um, well, because this is also one of the most beautiful pictures, not only of the mystery of wrath, but the mystery of grace. And unfortunately, grace doesn't provoke the same kind of questions. It really should. It really should. I think one of the ways that you know that you're growing as a Christian is when you're, I wouldn't say not bothered by questions of God's wrath. I don't think you ever get to that point. Even, even um, the Apostle Paul, you know, speaks of his anguish over his fellow countrymen that did not know Jesus, right? Who said he wished he could be cursed on their behalf. So I don't think you ever get to a point where that doesn't bother you. And if you're ever around Christians that aren't bothered by God's wrath, falling on people who've rejected him, then they're, a very, they're very far from the heart of God. But I think that we're never bothered nearly as much by the questions of why would I be a recipient of grace the way we should. And I do think that one of the signs that you're growing as a Christian is that you're, that you're bothered by that question maybe even more than the question of why God's wrath. I know a lot of people are bothered by the question of why God's wrath. More people need to be bothered by the question of why grace. And both of those questions are provoked by this last passage. I know we live in a day and age where it seems not popular to believe in God's wrath. It seems a very unpopular idea. It seems like, you know, who would want to try and make the case for it? I actually found an interesting quote. Were you guys um, Breaking Bad fans? Any Breaking Bad fans in here? I haven't never watched the show. I would like to one of these days. Um, but the guy, you know, that created the show, Vince Gilligan, um, was on NPR not too long ago and was talking. Is that his name? Right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, he was on NPR on Fresh Air talking, and, and I, this quote was fascinating. He was talking about kind of his views and how he doesn't believe in God and whatnot, but then he started to be troubled by some of the implications of those views, and he said this, you know, my girlfriend of 20 years has a great line that I always quote. She says, I can stand the thought that there's no heaven, but I don't know that I can stand the thought that there's no hell. I can stand, this is what his girlfriend says, I can stand the thought that there's no heaven, but I don't know if I can stand the idea that there's no hell, because where is Hitler then? You know, where is Pol Pot? There's got to be some kind of payback. It's fascinating. Even people who reject much of what the Bible says still 
are not really ready, I think rightfully so, to just get rid of the idea of judgment. Sometimes it's the Christians that are more uncomfortable with it. It does raise questions for us, but we're going to try and dig into this passage anyway. And here's what you're going to find maybe frustrating, hopefully revealing. What do you do when God doesn't answer your questions to your satisfaction? Because that's what we have here. Let's read this story. 2 Samuel 24. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but it's a good story. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king, that's David, said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Oror, I don't even know how to say that, Aror, sorry, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went out to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus saith the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or... Shall there be three days of pestilence in your land, or plague, we would say? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me, which is God. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. 
Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aronah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aronah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aronah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aronah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aronah gives to the king. And Aronah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aronah, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. And that's how 2 Samuel ends. It leaves you with some questions, doesn't it? Let's pray together and then we'll dig into this. Lord, we come here to this portion of your word and we want to see what you have for us. We want to understand more about who you are and your ways toward men and women. We pray that you'd help us. Send your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to basically take this in three sections. We're going to talk about the mystery of wrath. And then we're going to talk about the mystery of mercy. And then we're going to talk about the place of grace, because that's significant as well in this passage. Now, here's what's interesting about this story. You can read different commentaries. Commentaries are books written by Bible scholars trying to explain the text of the Bible. And if you come over to my garage, you'll see I have a whole garage full of these kinds of books. And I've read lots of them. And you can read many, many, many of these books. And they will have lots of suggestions as to why God was angry again at Israel. And why does God incite David to do something that is wrong? There's a lot of questions in this passage, aren't there? But here's what, here's what the Bible says. It doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you. It doesn't. There's nowhere in this passage that tells us why God is angry again at Israel. How do you like that? <laughs> How do you like that? I mean, it's possible that God is angry that Israel had not backed David when his son Absalom had staged a coup. Israel does, they never get punished for that. Maybe that's what's going on. But frankly, the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't tell us. We also don't know why taking a census was wrong. 
it, it doesn't say. Joab doesn't want to do it, right? And if you remember something about this guy, Joab, Joab is the commander who, uh, when David wanted to have Uriah the Hittite killed, he sent him a letter and said, make sure you pull back all the fighting men so that Uriah will be killed. Joab's the guy that did that. He had no sort of moral qualms about that, but he doesn't want to take a census. He thinks that that's a bad idea. But the king's word prevailed over Joab and the commanders of the army, their objections. So Joab seems to think it was wrong. David himself, before God says anything to him, comes to believe that he had sinned greatly in taking the census. But again, the story doesn't tell us why that was wrong. You can speculate. There's a whole number of different views and different ideas. But the Bible never says. What's wrong with that? And then, what do you make of God inciting David to do something that God doesn't like? What do you do with that? Now, here's what I, here's what I would say first. When I read a passage like this, and this is the conclusion of the book of 2 Samuel. When I read a passage like this, the first thing I say is, you know what? All those people that think that the Bible was kind of edited down and all the you know, it was sort of just crafted out of all these different stories, and they sort of picked all these little stories to sort of have this convincing idea about God to, for this agenda or that agenda. I just go, that's all, that's all crazy. Like, these stories would have been the first things edited out of the Bible if mankind had gotten their hands on it and been able to pick and choose the stories. The people that were involved in putting the Bible believed very strongly that no man and no woman has the right to pick and choose among revealed truths, as A.W. Tozer said one time. They believe that. That's why this kind of stuff is in the Bible. And, you know, this isn't the first time that you have this sort of thing where God uses or even incites people to do things to accomplish his purposes that are bad things. You ever heard of Nebuchadnezzar? You ever heard of the Babylonian exile? Have you ever read the book of Habakkuk, where one of God's own prophets cries out to him, how can you use a sinful nation to judge your people that are precious to you? And yet God does it. I think one of the best examples in Acts chapter 4. Because what do you think about the cross? The cross of Jesus was the most gross miscarriage of justice that's ever happened in the history of the world. The innocent Son of God, who did no wrong, was put to death like a common criminal. And in Acts chapter 4, the apostles are praying after some persecution has broke out among them, against them. And listen to what it says in chapter 4, verse 27 and verse 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, in Jerusalem is where they are, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So do you believe in free will or do you believe in God's sovereignty? And how does Acts 4 settle the question. Well, it settles the question by saying they're responsible. Evil people put Jesus to death. They conspired together to do it. 
But in doing it, they did what God's will and purpose had decided beforehand would happen. It's not just that God looked in the future and said, I think if Jesus keeps mouthing on like he's doing, that somebody's going to get upset and put him to death. I better make an account for that. No. No, it was the plan of God. And he used sinful people and their sinful actions to accomplish it. So you've got a lot of editing of the Bible if you want to, you have to do if you want to get rid of all of those sorts of ideas. Is it possible that God doesn't feel a need to answer all our questions? Deuteronomy 29.29 seems to suggest that. Have you ever read this passage? This is right after God has revealed all kinds of things through Moses. And then you find this verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. The Bible distinguishes between the secret things and the things that have been revealed. And there are some things that God doesn't reveal to us. Uh, Another great example is the forbidden fruit in the garden. Do you understand why they're not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Man, I wish you'd write a book about it if you know, because it doesn't say. Again, people have speculated. I actually think part of the point is it doesn't say. And so what you have is a focal point of obedience. Will Adam and Eve obey God's word over what seems good to them? Because it says in the story, when they looked at that tree, it looked pleasing to the eye and good for food. And that trumped God's word. What do you do when God's word tells you to do something that you don't want to do? See, it's one thing to say, well, I would do that anyway. Or if I sin in that way, it's going to bring shame upon me and my family. or Get me kicked out of school or whatnot. Like, that's not the focal point of obedience. It is actually part of God's grace that he even sets up laws and whatnot so that there will be consequences if you go crazy. But what about when God doesn't explain himself? Right? What about Abraham being asked to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice? Can you imagine what that would be like? Now, there is a place in the book of Hebrews where it says that Abraham reasoned that because God had promised to make a great nation from him, that God must have been planning to raise Isaac from the dead. He knew that God was going to do something, but he had no idea what it was going to be. And he actually was wrong, wasn't he, about what God had planned. Instead, God provided a sacrifice, a ram. There are lots of places in the Bible where God provokes questions that he doesn't answer. But here's what I want to suggest tonight. Is it possible that our frustration with not knowing why God is angry here actually maybe reveals something about us? See, as I said, it's one thing to to be provoked and to be bothered by God's grace. I don't think we're bothered by that very much, but we're bothered by God's anger, especially when it's not explained. Because I think we have this idea that for God to be angry at us, he better be able to make a good case 
to us. You ever heard of C.S. Lewis's essay, God in the Dock? He talks about how in the 20th century there was a huge revolution in the way mankind thought about their relationship with God. Previous to the 20th century, virtually everybody thought of themselves as having to give an answer to God for the way they had lived. But in the 20th century, all of that got turned upside down. And now mankind feels that God is the one who has a lot of explaining to do. And so Lewis wrote this essay called God in the Dock. In the English court system, the dock is where the accused sits. And rather than man being in the dock, answering to God for how he's lived the life that God has given him and used the gifts God has given him, instead, now we feel God is the one who has a lot of explaining to do. And he better be able to explain himself well. That's the basic posture that most of us have. And you come to a passage like this, and that, 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 that assumption just doesn't work. God is angry again at Israel. He doesn't explain why. And I think, I think what we have to wrestle with is, is it possible for you to trust a God who doesn't explain himself? Can you trust a God who doesn't explain himself? I don't know why Israel wasn't allowed to eat shellfish. It doesn't say. Oh, maybe it's because they lived in a desert and it would have spoiled and they would have got sick. I mean, people speculate all kinds of things, but the Bible doesn't say. Honestly, sometimes people speculate and then they come up with ideas that then become real barriers to faith. And sometimes it's not the scripture, but it's the speculations that end up being some of the barriers to faith. God doesn't explain some of these things. I mean, here's what's interesting. In our day and age, I feel like in the last 15, 20 years, there's more and more people that really like the idea of the mystery of God. They really like the idea that we can't sort of know everything about God. But usually when they talk about the mystery of God in a positive way, they mean, I really want to believe and I like to believe that his grace is beyond what I could understand. Awesome. So do I. But what about his wrath? Can his wrath be part of the mystery of God? What about his anger? Is God allowed to be angry about something that you don't fully understand? And I would suggest to you that if you're not open to that possibility, you're not going to get very far in Christianity. Because there are things that God feels strongly about that he may not be able to explain to you. And the best analogy I know to think of is what it's like to be a parent and to have a child. And I guess this is sort of a, a cliche preacher story, story, but it's true. Like when you take your little children to go get vaccinated, put aside whether or not you think vaccinations are bad or not, whatever. But let you take your children to, the, to get vaccinated and they look at you. Right? It's one thing, like it's the, the, the one, there's one, one year when, I don't remember which year it is, but there's one year when you have to get three shots. So it's one thing to get one shot, the kid doesn't know it's coming, but then after they get one, and then you have to hold them while they're screaming, they're looking at your eyes, and they have to get another one, and then they have to get another one, and they don't understand why. Is it possible that there are things like that that God can't explain to you? for some reason or whatever, won't explain to you, and yet they still matter to him an awful lot. Is that possible? How well do you do with, trust me, even if I can't explain it? 
I thought about this, you know, because this is kind of a heavy passage, so I thought I'd try and have a little lighter, maybe, illustration. Think about this. How many of you ladies, let's, let's ask the ladies right now. How many of you ladies, if you were getting married and your fiancé told you that he was not going to tell you where the honeymoon was going to be, but you would have to pack two suitcases, one for cold climate, one for a warm climate, and you weren't going to know until you got on the plane where you were going for your honeymoon. How well would you do with that? I have known a couple guys that did that. I always thought, that's pretty risky. Then, of course, I, then I thought, well, you know, like, if he doesn't know her well enough to get that question right, maybe they shouldn't be getting married. <laughs> or if she doesn't trust him enough to get that question right, maybe they shouldn't be getting married. But I do wonder how many of us, like that idea, there's probably a few people in here who's like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. I'm awesome. That'd be awesome. I think most people are a little nervous about that idea. Am I right? No? I think a lot of people, I know some of you, I know like so many of you struggle with anxiety that it's already starting to like go up in your mind just thinking about that, even though it's not even anywhere close to reality for you, right? You're not even dating anybody, but you're already getting anxious about this potential scenario, all right? I just think we've got trust issues all over the place. And a story like this, see, one of the things I think is helpful about this is it kind, of, it, it kind of has a way of revealing this. If you're really frustrated and you're ready to walk out of here and never come back to RUF because I read this crazy story about God being angry but not explaining why he's angry, you may actually have trust issues with God. You may have an issue. Like, I can trust God only as far as he can explain himself to my satisfaction. And I would submit to you that is a tremendous barrier to walking very far or very long with God. And it is fundamentally to misconstrue the relationship. Who is God and who are we? And this is a passage that really presses that issue, I think. But... Even more important is the mystery of mercy. Because the structure of this passage is very interesting. Uh, the, the Hebrew Bible does this sometimes where there's a, a particular structure where, um, you know, things will kind of go. It's like an A, B, C, D, E, D, C, B, A, like this chiastic structure, they call it sometimes. There's some places where it seems like the Bible commentators read that into it. But this one is interesting. The middle of this chapter is verse 15. Sorry, the middle of this chapter in the Hebrew Bible is that. In the uh, English, the, trans- the numbers are off by one, sorry. In, in, the, in the English, it's verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. That's the middle verse in this section. And it's surrounded by verses about God's wrath. Ralph Davis, a great Bible commentator, says that what you have here is mercy wrapped in wrath is at the heart of this story. This is the focus of this passage. I know that you as modern Western people get most disturbed by the wrath of God. And the fact that it's not explained. I do too. But honestly, the structure of the passage is putting the focus on verse 16 
and the fact that the Lord stays his hand. Why don't we question that? Why don't we say, why didn't God go ahead and destroy Jerusalem too? What earthly reason could he have for stopping and not doing what he promised? You know, we often like depend on the promises of God. Why not this promise? Why don't we pray this promise back to God, right? I'm being a little bit facetious, but you know, there's a sense in which this is also a perplexing question about this passage. Why does God stop? Why doesn't God destroy Jerusalem? And I think it's interesting how we often object to unexplained wrath, but we rarely object to undeserved mercy. But that's what we have at the center of this passage. Even though what first confronts us are all these questions about wrath and God inciting David to take a census and then getting mad about it. But the heart of this passage is here, verse 16, undeserved mercy with no explanation except for one. Our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of mercy. I mean, David's actions here are remarkable. Verse 14 David says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. In other words, he's saying, of the three choices, I don't want enemies to pursue me. I'll take the two things that are obviously from the hand of God, famine or a plague. I would rather throw myself into God's hands. And now here's what's fascinating about that. David, of all people, should be a little nervous about trusting to God. Here's the thing. David is the one who's the cause of the Lord's judgment. The Lord is judging Israel because David took this inappropriate census. And yet David's direction is to run towards God. He seems to apprehend something about the character of God. Even in the midst of God's judgment, he still apprehends that God is merciful. At the heart of his being, better to trust myself to God, even though I don't deserve his mercy, better to trust myself to God than to man. There's faith there in the midst of this even after he's done this horrible thing that is going to bring tremendous death and destruction to his people. Not only that, verse 17, he takes on the role of an advocate pleading for God's mercy on his people. And this is a fascinating picture because now the king has become a priest. See, typically in the Old Testament, you have prophet, priest, and king separated. But there are these interesting places where they get combined together, foreshadowing the one who was to come who would be prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus himself. Here, the king pleads as a priest. Priests are the ones that go between you and God and plead for you. That's why it's so good to know that we have a high priest in heaven who even now pleads his wounds on your behalf. It's good to know that. But here you have a picture of that too. But how do you get that kind of faith? How do you get that kind of faith? This kind of faith doesn't just spring up in a crisis. If you're one of those people who thinks, well, I'm just going to kind of 
you know, kind of hang around with God, um, but, you know, I don't really pray, I don't really read my Bible, I don't really think about him very much, but, you know, I know that if things ever got really difficult, you know, I'd be able to run to him. You know, the way I think about that, I grew up in a, in a Baltimore County in Maryland, we lived on top of this hill, really, really windy, windy road. I remember one time, something wrong with my battery of my car, and I had to drive home, and I could either have the headlights, the windshield wipers, um, or the defrost, but I couldn't, I couldn't have all three of them running at once. The problem is it was at night, and it was snowing, right, but there was a sense in which, like, I didn't need all three of those. Like, I knew that road so well, and I think for a lot of us, do you know the way to God so well that you could find him in the dark is a question because man I hope that when darkness has come into your life that's not the first time you try to find your way to his face right this is this is one of those passages that provokes that question how do you grow this kind of faith I love these words of Martin Luther he said one time I know not where he leads but well do I know my guide I think so often in our day and age, we're, we're always trying to figure out the will of God more than knowing the character of God. And I think that's fundamentally a mistake, biblically speaking, as I don't think God does ever promise to tell you what he's got planned for you. It would probably freak you out anyway, right? <laughs> but I think God's will is more like car headlights, like you go a little bit farther and you see a little more, a little bit farther, you see a little more. It's not like walking into a room and flipping on the light switch and it's all clear. There's nowhere the Bible promises that kind of stuff. Anyway. David has faith, remarkable faith. How do we grow it? Well, I think this kind of faith is best grown by seeing God's mercy transform the place of wrath into the place of grace. And that's where I want to, want to finish here. Look at the place. Now, you may not understand the significance of this, but this is, this is an amazing thing when you see how this part of this story connects to the rest of the Bible. And again, it's the real question, I think, that should be provoked for us, but I know it's not. It's not the first thing I think about. It's probably not the first thing you think about, but the story provokes this question. Why does God stop at the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite? Why there? Do you know what a threshing floor is? That's where you kind of beat the grain and the light grain sort of floats the chaff, kind of floats the surface, and you end up with the good grain, right? So it's like a farm. It's like a barn, basically. And yet, that's where the Lord stops before destroying Jerusalem. And I actually think it's interesting. Verse 17, where David pleads with him, doesn't come after he stops. It's a little hard to translate in the, for, in, into the English, but it's saying, basically, notice what it says here, that David says that when he sees the angel destroying, not when he sees that he stopped. You understand? So, in other words, David has advocated for his people, and it's interesting the wording he uses, the language of the good shepherd and his sheep. It's not completely out of left field because often the leaders of Israel are regarded as shepherds and the people as sheep. That's, that language is in the Psalms. It's not something, Jesus wasn't the first one to come up with that imagery. But listen to the words of Jesus. You see, it's one thing for David to say, as he does, strike me instead of the sheep. 
You see that in verse 17? Why should the sheep suffer for what the shepherd has done? Strike me instead of the sheep. It's one thing for David to say that because he deserved the wrath of God. When he asks for the wrath of God to come to him rather than the sheep, he deserves it. But we have a good shepherd who became sin for us and took our place at the judgment of the cross. Listen to these words of Jesus from John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So the Lord's destruction stops at the threshing floor. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Then the prophet of God tells David, you need to build an altar here. See, God never winks at sin. He doesn't just say, well, I changed my mind. I'm not going to judge sin anymore. No. Sin must be dealt with. Sacrifice must be made. God stops short of Jerusalem, but still an altar must be built. Still sacrifices have to be offered. Here you see justice and mercy meet together at the altar. I think of those, that great hymn by John Newton, Let us wonder grace and justice join and point to mercy's store, the storehouse of mercy. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. If you're a Christian, your hope is not that God just sort of woke up one morning and decided to be kind to you. Your hope is that justice smiles. The justice of God smiles because Jesus suffered everything that needed to be suffered for you to be set free from his judgment at the cross. And yet even this altar isn't the end of the story. I mean, God is showing here this amazing thing, that the place of judgment, the place of death and destruction, could be transformed into the place of grace. Do you see what's happened? The place of judgment has been transformed into the place of grace. But that was just the beginning. Because here's what's amazing to realize. This threshing floor that David buys becomes the site of the temple. This is the temple. Look at what it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. The place where God's judgment stops is the place of the altar. But it's also Mount Moriah. You know what else happened on Mount Moriah? Anybody? That's where Abraham offered up Isaac. The same place where Abraham offered Isaac and God provided a ram for a sacrifice is the same place, the threshing floor, where the destroying angel stops because God says no more. Where David builds the temple, or where David buys, Solomon actually builds the temple. Isn't that amazing? How many ways does God have to say that he is committed to the place of judgment becoming the place of grace. Because he shouts that message to us at the cross, doesn't he? And what a beautiful thing for David. At the end of this book, the Lord stops the plague. The sacrifices work. Grace will prevail. Can you imagine all 
the stuff that David has done. You think about all the stuff we've talked about this semester that he did that was so wretched, and yet the final thing that he experiences is this tangible promise that grace will prevail. The place of judgment, the place of destruction, the place of death will become the place of new life and grace and mercy. I had uh, years ago a student who had just suffered horrible um, stuff from her family, just horrific things. I remember one time talking with her and she asked me, you know, why, why did God allow this stuff? And you get asked that question sometimes. I never have an answer, but I always want to say, I don't know, but I do know that there's another question that is worth asking. Not a question that does away with your question, but a question that sets your question in a proper context. And it's this, why did the author of our salvation become perfect through suffering? Why was it the will of God the Father to crush the Son, as Isaiah 53 says? If that question doesn't bother you as much as all the other questions that you have, then pray that the Lord would open your eyes to the reality of his grace. Because I would argue that you're taking it for granted. And we should be more bothered by the why of grace than all the other whys. Again, hear me clearly. It doesn't mean that your other why questions are illegitimate or inappropriate or you need to quit asking them. But when when this question, why does God relent from this deserved destruction, with that question doesn't become the bedrock that supports you as you ask all the other questions, then I I, I just don't know. I think you're going to always kind of go round and round in sort of like a little catch-22. This is the question that needs to stun our hearts. It's not the only question, but it's the question. I think the poets sing it best. Oh, love incomprehensible, that made thee bleed for me. The judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. And probably the best way it's ever been asked, we sang it earlier, Charles Wesley. So, you know, some of these things, you, can, you, you, can't, you can't say them in propositions as well as you can ask them in questions. And can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? All I can say is if you ever feel like you've got a perfectly reasonable answer to that question, you're very far from the kingdom of God. Those that know God best never get over that question. Never find a satisfactory answer to that question. Never quit asking it, right? Let's pray, and then we're going to sing the doxology.